Life is hectic, so wherever tomorrow takes you, be ready with Factor's chef-crafted and dietitian approved meals delivered right to your door. With over 35 options a week, including keto, calorie smart, vegan and veggie, and more, they've got a variety that fits your lifestyle. Factor has restaurant-quality meals ready to heat and eat in just two minutes. They also have various easy options for the entire day, from breakfast to midday bites, smoothies, and more. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is a nutritious and delicious experience, and it won't break the bank. You can customize your meals by choosing 6 to 18 per week. Plus, you can pause or reschedule deliveries anytime to fit your schedule. Factor meals are 100% hassle-free, giving you more time for what matters. Head to factormeals.com slash otherside50 and use the code otherside50 to get 50% off. That's code otherside50 at factormeals.com for 50% off your delicious, hassle-free meals. Hello, and welcome to our podcast, The Other Side NDE, where we talk about the fascinating phenomena of near-death experiences. These are more than just close calls. These are first-hand accounts of what people experienced dying, leaving the body, exploring another realm, and then returning to their body in order to share that experience with you. Every person that we interview, and many of us listeners, believe these accounts to be undeniably true experiences people had on the other side. If you enjoy listening to stories like these, make sure to check out our YouTube channel, The Other Side NDE, where we post two to three videos every week of people sharing their NDE stories. Good afternoon. My name is Kelly Sammy, and I am the owner and operator of Nurture Your Soul. I'm here today to talk about my near-death experience, which happened in 2008, and just really kind of speak to what happened and what life has been like after a little bit. So in 2008, I was 38 years old, and I was living a life of what I refer to as victimhood. It felt like everything in life was happening to me versus for me. And no matter what was coming into the periphery of what I now refer to as the story of Kelly, it seemed to be a negative thing, no matter what it was. Even the beautiful things as I now look back and reflect, there was just this receiver that everything came through a filter at that stage in my life that it was happening to me versus for me. That is, of course, shifted since my near-death experience. And in 2008, there were many things that were happening. Not one thing, but a culmination of things led to me ultimately planning and partaking in the act of suicide. And I speak about this in a way that may feel like I'm telling someone else's story, and that's because that's how it feels now. There is nothing here that could even fathom suicide now. But in 2008, I was so destructive in my own mental health that that seemed to be the only way out. And it felt as though I was actually doing a favor to those that I loved the most by exiting because I was no good for them or good to them. So the mind had played so many tricks in this victimhood that it actually engaged in thinking this would in fact be better for them as well. So after that decision was obviously made in the mind of Kelly, the planning began 
Although there wasn't a specific day at that time, there was a knowing that I would just know. And I had everything lined up in my head of how that would play out. And I cannot remember exactly how long that had been orchestrating in the background, but I share in other videos of my own about how I realize now that I kind of lived with what I called a, a plan D, which was a suicide exit my whole entire life. This again, led up to 38 years old where it was no longer an option. It was the viable plan. So as I packed my car up, which is what I had intended to do, in my diseased mind, thought that my family would want to have photos of that day. Again, a very diseased calculation, which doesn't even make sense now because I'm in a rational mind, that I would get up that morning and I would put my best face on and I would partake in doing family photos so that they would have those to look back on. Again, not even a healthy way of thinking, of course. So we carried on with those photos and my car was packed. Because I had mental health issues that had been building up for several months and I recognized that the medications they were giving me were making me worse, I stopped taking them. And instead, what I started to do was to store away all of those medications. So in my planning, I had all the necessary ingredients to make this happen. And as I was not a drinker by any means, but maybe a glass here and there, the intention was to take the medications and to drink alcohol and write my suicide notes. So I packed my car for all of that and off I went family photos done, everyone smiling, kisses goodbye, like I would normally do when I left the house. But what was different in this day was that I knew I wasn't coming back. And the disease mind was okay with that. Again, it felt as though it was honoring and doing a favor to those that I loved. Again, not a rational way of thinking. So if this is something you are going through or someone you love, Please understand this is not a cry for help. It is a true path of suicide being created. Off I drove in my SUV and at the time we lived on a very, very remote island in New Zealand. And I drove to a very remote location, which I had not predetermined. I just drove around and found a place and parked and had this beautiful view of the ocean up on a bluff far away from anything and anyone. And I sat there and I began to take the medication and to drink the alcohol. And I began to write my suicide notes one by one. As I finished them up on the dashboard, they went until I had a, a stack of them. And inevitably the very last one was to the person that was going to find my body because that felt really important to me to apologize that this act of having to take care of this vessel that was no longer alive was going to be a very painful experience for that person. I just knew that. I just couldn't even fathom that being someone's job. I had thought that it was time to maybe um, consider having one last move about before moving to the back of my SUV, which was my plan. I had the pillow, I had the blanket, I was ready. The medications had gone in, the alcohol had gone down and I had done it nice and slowly because I had researched and knew that I had to do that. I felt the medication and the alcohol, but I thought that I could stand up and I opened the door and attempted to do so and immediately realized it was way past that stage. 
So I closed the door and I climbed into the back seat of my SUV and I began to get comfortable in that space. Growing up Catholic, there was a constant conversation that was moving in the thoughts saying, I know this is a sin, but I know that God is loving and forgiving. And I just kept saying that over and over again, obviously in an attempt to comfort myself in getting ready to do something that I had been raised for 38 years to believe was a commitment to a sin, which would base me in hell for the rest of my eternity, which is a pretty scary thought and tells you I wasn't playing games. This was the real deal. And there was no attempt to try and get rescued or saved. This was going to happen. So as I got comfortable in the back seat, I just laid back and I looked up at the top of my car, the roof of my SUV, and thought to myself, how will I know that I'm not in here anymore? Which is an interesting question. And really, I now recognize as kind of the first entry into meditation. And the next entry into meditation, which I didn't know, was I began to focus heavily on my breathing. I guess I had realized that when the breath stopped, that meant I wasn't there anymore. But as we didn't, none of us know what death looks like or how it arises or what it might feel like. It felt like the most plausible place to focus my energy versus on fear or anything else. So it became the mantra in the mind. And I believe I was saying it internally, but I can't remember at that point if I was saying it audibly to myself in the car. I just knew I kept saying, are you still breathing? And I know there's a God that's loving and forgiving and that all is well. Something to that effect over and over and over. What I noticed was first initially a very strange feeling within the body different than just what was happening with the medications and the alcohol. It was a noticing that the body was in distress. I wasn't in pain. I wasn't writhing or nauseous. I just knew that something was shifting and I was starting to hear what I call a crackling sound. But what I noticed was that wasn't a sound like you or I describe outside audibly. It was that I was becoming the sound, the crackling and the popping and the sensations were starting to be noticed vibrationally. The next thing I noticed was an energy or what felt like a pulling effect. And again, it wasn't something external. And I know this is really hard to understand. And most of us who have had a near-death experience will say this at least once in our sharing. There are no words to equate what happened. I do my best to point to it with words, which is all I have in this 3D linear version. But honestly, it is a sensation that is not able to be put into words. The body just felt molecular. It felt vibrational. It felt like energy, something I had never experienced. And I noticed that sensation pulling in an upwards like motion. The next thing I knew was this upwards pulling was so strong. And then I was out of the car and appeared to be above it as if the top of my SUV wasn't even there. And I was looking down through a glass top, seeing the physical body beneath me, writhing and moving and obviously in distress, but I was not 
contained in that, nor was I experiencing it, nor was I the one thinking I need to get back in there or, oh my gosh, what have I done? Or shame on you. There was none of that happening. There was just almost like an inquisitive little child noticing. And there was just interest in that, that there was no attachment to an outcome. There was no thoughts that I needed to get back or I needed to find someone to help me or, oh my gosh, what have I done? There was just notice that. I don't know how long this seemed to have gone on because again, many NDEers will say this as well, time and space just dissipate. And there's just this knowingness of what's happening, but not an entity. I wasn't a body. I wasn't a vessel. I wasn't a person anymore. There weren't thoughts. There wasn't distress. There was just noticing vibration, energy. The pulling had stopped. The writhing beneath me was happening and there was an interest in noticing. And this continued until the writhing and whatnot seemed to have subsided. And then I felt the popping and the sound, but now it was more intensified and I was really aware that it wasn't outside of myself, nor was I hearing it auditorily or feeling it physically. I was it. I became that. The sensation of the upward pull got stronger and stronger and the sensation of the upward pull lifted the energy of that which I refer to as Kelly now, but no body. And up, 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 it appeared to go louder, 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 sensation stronger, 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 until there was a thrust and a burst into what I call blackness, just pure blackness. I know that may sound scary to someone who's listening to this, but trust me, there was nothing scary about this. It was the most intense, beautiful feelings of love I've ever experienced. And I would have happily stayed there, whatever there was. Again, have no identification with how long the energy seemed to have stabilized in this blackness. But at some stage, the gentleness and the love seemed to have consumed all of this to the point where there was a feeling of the sensation of upward pulling again and crackling and popping and smells and sensations I can't even put words to, but I'll attempt to. And there was this momentum again that seemed to have pulled or thrust me into what I refer to as the most delicate, beautiful color of pink that I've never been able to reproduce or see again. Because again, our linear version of sense, smell, taste, touch, all the senses is very much muted for the 3D experience. It felt as though the energy unfolded like it had been trapped in a tuna or sardine can for all of its eternity. But there was no body that was unfolding. There were no arms, there was no physical presence, nor was there an interest in where that had gone at all or a concern about it. And the beauty of what was around me was just pure love and I was that. It wasn't, I'm looking at pink, I'm smelling these gardenian orchid smells that are just unfathomable. I'm hearing angelic music that I can't even put a finger on, but is so familiar. I know it. I know it. I know it. Here, I know it. It knows me. I was it. I wasn't the separate entity. And I will say that over and over and over again, because to me, it's the most significant part of this journey and story. 
which is we become so convinced of this egoic self and that all dissipates, it all is left. It's what we refer to as death. So there was just this expansion and this beautiful love that I was. There was no desire to go anywhere. There was no thought processes. There was no, where is this body? You know, what's happened? There was none of that. There was no sadness. And then there was this knowingness that I was being summoned or called. Again, all telepathic, all without words or the linear structures that we rely on to communicate here. It was just known. And the next thing that I seemed to have perceived was what I now refer to as Archangel Gabriel. How I knew that was what was happening, I will never be able to explain that. And I don't think I need to. I just knew. And there was a known way to follow this energy without having to try and understand it. It's not like the energy was saying, do I fly? Do I move? None of that was happening. It was just intuitively known. The drawing, the magnetism, and the sensation was a following of that energy I refer to as Archangel Gabriel. Many things happen in my near-death experience, far much more than I can ever cover here. And I've done the best I can to articulate a lot of that in my journeys and my follow-up um, YouTubes. But what I will speak about here, I think, is the most relevant, which is, unlike others, I didn't have a go-through-a-tunnel experience. I didn't have what others refer to as a life review. My life review appeared to me in the feeling of being in this place that felt like a tomb that was the most beautiful experience and again the most loving and yet there seemed to be still an aspect of this other side where i didn't feel worthy to be in that space it wasn't a shaming like we get in the physical form it was more of a um, presence feeling and i again i can't speak to it other than to say if you've ever walked into a room where you feel underdressed and you're kind of like, oh my goodness, that's kind of how the energy was experiencing it, but it immediately was gone. As soon as it arose, it was gone. I knew that was where I was to be. And as soon as that settled, it was as if my whole 38 years flashed before me, me being a word I'm using, but there wasn't an entity. There were all these experiences that appeared to have happened in my 38 years. We call them good, bad, right, wrong, sinful, or just. And what I noticed was none of that was playing out. It was almost like watching a slideshow that I was reliving. It wasn't outside of me. I was re-experiencing it with each entity, but it happened in what appeared to be seconds. And every single part was celebrated. That's significant to me. It's what I've brought back in the story of Kelly, which is all of this is beautiful. All of this is celebrated. And each part, even those we call the most painful, are too, in fact, beautifully orchestrating themselves. And the celebration was after each one. It wasn't just what we call the good stuff. I now refer to this as my soul plan.
my soul map, which is what I was shown. Each entity, each other, each aspect, divinely, intuitively known to have been chosen to carry out these acts or experiences with each other, perfectly timed, perfectly orchestrated, and perfectly in the way that we intended for them to go. This really points to something that many struggle with, which is the idea of free will. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that, but I will tell you, I no longer feel that that is part of what's happening here in the story of Kelly. The soul plan, the soul map, the soul journey is that which I am, with God which I am, unified as what we refer to as oneness, having the experience, because God can't know itself as all of this, and I can't know myself as just part of it. So the aspects united, which we refer to as oneness, is what seems to have been noticed. These life exchanges or soul plans, some of which I was able to be with the energies that had caused harm to myself, one significant one. At the age of three, I was molested by my paternal grandfather. And he was one of the entities that I was able to experience and heal so much obviously with. And I think that's again a very relevant point because I think many of us have childhood trauma. I don't care what how perfect your family is, someone will always be able to point to a childhood trauma and to be able to notice that that too was part of our soul plan. There was such a willingness for that to be healed and known and then there was such a willingness to understand that he too was part of my soul family and here supporting me and rooting for me and cheering me on in all the life experiences, including the one that we had, which was so painful. So beautifully, many of these things seem to have played out. And again, I can't refer to how long I spent in this beautiful structure having these experiences, but it felt like seconds. It felt like just seconds. I had an intuitive knowingness that I wasn't going to be staying. There wasn't a wrestle with that. I later discover as this unraveling of my near-death experiences continued, that there was a struggle apparently and a negotiation to not return to the physical body. But in this apparent experience on that particular day, there seemed to just be a willingness and intuitive knowingness I now know part of my soul plan that I would return to the physical body and I would resume and continue on with my life, but that I would no longer be the same version of Kelly that had just committed the act of suicide. The next thing I realized was hearing an auditory voice, and it was auditory, and seeing a physical presence, and it was physical, of what was my five-year-old that I had left behind in the version of a 21-year-old physical body in front of me saying, I need you, mom. I need you to come back. <sighs> Sorry, this part was always hard. Apologies. That's a tough one, no matter how long this has been. Beautiful, but tough. So as I heard that and saw him and felt his presence, I knew. I knew it was 
necessary and in my heart intuitively I knew that I would be the person he needed me now which was the reason I wanted to leave the body to begin with was I felt that his life would be better without me so with what appeared to be a newfound understanding of incarnation and lots of support and energy on the other side there was a willingness for this to happen an engagement to return and be what I apparently needed to be in my soul plan for my son. The last thing that I recall as I was energetically moving and the vibration was starting to change and the popping was starting to return, the gardenia and all the smells and the angelic sounds were starting to become more muted. The pink was getting less and less. Was the angels guiding me? Again, not bodies, just a knowingness. And what I was told to me was the most profound message that I brought back with me, which is our only role here is to breathe and not resist. Such a powerful, packed thing to bring home. And it has continued to unravel since 2008 in understanding experientially what that meant. Breathe and don't resist, breathe and don't resist. Breathe and don't resist, the rest is taken care of. It's become the mantra that plays in the mind at times that seem tough. So the first one I got to experientially recognize that was noticing I had EMTs and ambulance workers all around me trying to save me. I didn't know how I had been discovered. It didn't matter. There was no interest in what had happened to the body. There was no concern about it. There was just this popping, popping, popping sensation, moving from the pinkness back into that darkness. And then just what felt like I was back in a sardine can. It didn't hurt, but it was uncomfortable. It was the only way I can explain it. And it definitely felt like I was no longer an energy or a vibration, but that continued on. I was definitely not who I was before. The ambulance workers and EMTs had to bring a helicopter over because we lived on such a remote location that that was the only way they could get me to the local hospital. So here I am having just committed suicide and they're trying to get me ready to put into the helicopter to airlift me to the closest hospital. And all I wanted to do was tell all of them how euphoric I was and how beautiful life was and hug and kiss every single one of them without recognizing my body had, you know, all kinds of things all over it. And they're trying to cut my clothing off of me and put all the things on me and oxygen and whatever else they do. I wasn't paying attention to any of that, even going into the helicopter, which I had never ridden in one before. I just wanted everyone to know how beautiful and euphoric I felt and how life was so amazing. So they continued to work on me. And at this stage, I now recognize they probably thought I had done some damage to my brain. There was nothing in me that even fathoms that, that could be happening here. They're looking at each other. They're looking at their watches at how long I had apparently been unconscious, which one of them kept saying something about 18 minutes, which I didn't at the time know, meant I'm seeing all of this stuff, but there's no interest in any of it. There's just an interest in this euphoria. 
the next thing I know, it seemed to have fast forwarded a bit and I was in the ER in a gurney, in a bed, just like everyone else with the curtains drawn except partially open because I was on suicide watch. And I had doctors and nurses coming in and checking on me regularly. And I just didn't feel like myself, the self that had committed suicide. I felt so euphoric, so much love, so much vibration. And there was, again, this desire to get up and run through the hospital and tell everyone and hug everyone how beautiful they were and how much love they should be experiencing. And yet my body wasn't ready for any of that. I was still shaky and the medication was still dissipating from my body, but there was no way to pump my stomach. It had been way too long. So they were just monitoring me, doing blood samples, doing work, which all my labs came back normal. No liver damage, no damage to my body. The meds slowly dissipated and I was able to start to talk about what had happened in my own mind. I had doctors and nurses moving through there crazily enough throughout the whole entire time. And many experiences happened at this hospital. I won't go into all of that right now, but I will say that there was a profound knowing that I was forever shifted. And if I laid still long enough, everything was vibrational. And if I laid still enough and I paid attention to any area or any one thing, I became that. I felt molecular. I felt like I was moving atoms. And if I stared into the wall, I became the wall. If I stared into the curtains, I became the curtains. So that became where I played for a little bit while I was stuck in this ER situation and unable to share my newfound love of life. It's humorous to note that this was when I first had to trust that I was no longer the same person that had left this body. When the doctors did the rounds that evening before they moved me to a location within the hospital for an overnight, and during the rounds, ironically, they were asking questions, which to this day I find hysterical. Are you seeing or hearing things that others aren't? It's really quite ironic to me that that was the question. And it was the first time I had to trust what I saw and heard audibly and physically, just like I'm right here right now physically in an entity I now refer to as my birth guide, Bernadette. And she said to me, shh, don't say anything. They'll lock you up. At this stage, I had to decide if I had, in fact, caused brain damage. But I felt so loved and so supported that it didn't seem to matter or be of concern. There was just this trust. So to the doctors, I said, no, I just feel I feel really good and I want to get back to my family. So I was relocated in the hospital and I won't spend a lot of time on what happens in those instances because it's very detailed, but I will say that I had interactions with what I now refer to as life angels, earth angels, aspects of others who just kept reminding me to remember to trust that I'm seen, I'm heard, I'm loved. I'm not alone in this earth experience. I have the utmost support that this is all determined that I would have this type of support and then I could go forward and there was no mission other than to love and to breathe and not resist the rest would be taken care of 
I wasn't given a mission to bring back. I wasn't told that this was school. I wasn't told that I had life lessons and that's why I had to return. None of that seemed to have happened here. It was just go forward child and experience and we will cheer you on no matter what's happening. It's perfect. Breathe and don't resist. You're loved. You're supported. You're honored. So that's the message and truly the only message I've carried forward. I'm not a teacher. I'm not a guru. I'm not a master. I don't have anything special. I'm just like anyone else with all of these senses that we were gifted to be opened and life seems to bury that under the surface through all the constructs, beliefs, and conditioning that we are given at the time we are born. You are a girl. You are the daughter of X and Y. You are smart. You are this, you are that. Each a label which continues the identification process to dismantle the understanding that I am all of this. Each time I was labeled and conditioned the belief that was given to me that I then took on board, I was removed further and further from that which I was, which was this whole godliness, universe, love, whatever you refer to it as. This is not to harm us. It's part of the process of experientially having this encounter and all of these soul experiences, just as it is that that unraveling may or may not come later in life. All of it perfectly unfolding in the right time, in the right ways, with all of the right participants. Those are the things I spend time on today. Being passionate about love and life being passionate about helping others to remember who they are. I consider it a soul guide. I'm not walking before anyone. I'm walking beside them, holding their hand. One of the most profound things I heard was from Ram Das after I returned to this physical body and it lined up so perfectly in what I had just experienced, which is we're all here to walk each other home. And that is it. It is as simple as that. It is as subtle as that. Every message I have received from now to the 2008 period, and yes, those messages come through all the time in every way because they're meant to, have only ever shown and pointed back to what I experienced, which is my only role here is to breathe and not resist. The rest is unfolding perfectly. You are loved, you are loved, and this is all showing up as intended. Experience. Be in this moment and experience it fully. And that's what I continue to do. I hope this message brings someone comfort. And if I can leave with only one note that sticks for someone who may be watching this, that either is struggling with suicide or has someone in their life that is struggling with suicide ideation, love and support them. Never tell them that what they're thinking about doing is a selfish act. It was anything but selfish. The mind was so diseased that it truly felt I was going to be doing other service by leaving them, by not leaving them with this. And supporting and loving them and listening to them, and if they're expressing an interest in harming themselves, hear them out, tell them you can feel that. Maybe bring a relatable moment in your life where you too have had that thought, because I don't know anyone in the physical vessel who hasn't at least had that thought even if they've never ever landed on it 
Thoughts are just things. We all have them. And there's some that repeat. Support each other, love each other, and know that suicide is not the way out. This is a beautiful gift we're all meant to experience. Please, please, please take care of yourselves, honor each other, show up and love in the best way that you can. It makes me want to cry to think of anyone harming themselves the way that I did. And although I am able to celebrate so many years with my son who is getting ready to turn 21 next month, I can't fathom not being here for the presence of all of this, including what happened prior to it, which is also part of my unfolding. So if I can leave a message with you, it's to love one another, but love this tender being the most. He, she, they need you. We all need you. Much love.